You ever feel like sometimes the worship is so powerful, like you just don't need a message after that? You're like, yeah, every week. Oh, man. Easter Sunday. Um, Last few months, what we've been talking about is the life of Christ and uh, the reality of of this mind-blowing concept, okay? Jesus fulfilled everything in the Old Testament. He was the uh, fulfillment of the law, that he validated everything that that the Old Testament said that would need to be validated uh, to be the Messiah, to be the the Savior of the world, that he lived perfectly under the law, that he uh, fulfilled all the prophecy of the Old Testament as the Messiah, that he did the final thing that we needed, which was to be the perfect sacrifice on the cross, that we needed uh, blood poured out in order to forgive our sin, and that the perfect Son of God had to go to that cross to to pour that blood out, that somehow, mysteriously, um, God did this huge transfer of our sin to Jesus and his righteousness to us, that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God. That when you put your faith in Jesus, that what you're doing is you're saying that uh, I am now um, perfect. This is kind of a weird thing because we, we don't feel this way. But I am perfect, not because of who I am, because of, of this faith in Jesus that he is my perfection. He is my righteousness and that somehow I'm now a new creature in Christ. Amen? That, that's who we are. Now, the thing is, everything in Jesus's life confirmed, validated, um, and, and helped us to understand that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. He went to the cross. Everything was pointing for that event to happen. Everything from birth until the cross. But the thing is, it wasn't until the resurrection, that final, ultimate confirmation of his authority and power who he is, okay, that when he picked his life back up again, that that was the ultimate act of Jesus declaring that he's the Savior of the world and that he's your personal, living, permanent Savior, okay? Here's how Paul says it in uh, 1 Corinthians 15, in verse 17. He says, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins, okay? What this means is that if Jesus simply just went to the cross and paid for sin, that would be okay in one sense, uh, in the sense of, of now I can have a religion, now I can have uh, forgiveness. But he went the, such a huge step beyond that. He actually became a living Lord who is forever alive, who wants to have a relationship with you permanently. Okay, So we don't have a religion. And this is what a lot of people don't quite grasp about Christianity. Christianity is not intended to be a religion. It is intended to be a relationship with a living Lord. Okay, so when we celebrate on Easter Sunday, Jesus is alive and he's been raised. It's not like a theology. It's not like a belief system. It is a confirmation of the manifest presence of Jesus in your life. You're not here 
to be convinced of something. You are here to experience the presence of Jesus, okay? And so as we look at our scripture today, we're going to go to John chapter 20, and we're going to uh, explore and understand this, this important thing. God has drawn you by His Holy Spirit to a place where you can hear the Word of God, but He's not drawing you just to believe something. He, he is drawing you to believe something, but He's drawing you past that belief into something that's going to change your life, which is a daily, permanent relationship with God. He, he wants you to know Him, and He wants you to be known by Him. Okay, so let's look at John chapter 20. We're going to see Peter's uh, experience here. We're going to try to understand how we fit into this. So John 20, starting in verse 1. Let's stand as we read God's word this morning. It says, Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark. Uh, and saw that the stone had been taken away from the tomb. Now, she did not come there because she thought that Jesus was alive. She went to the tomb because she had a responsibility to try to make the burial of Jesus more uh, acceptable in their practices. They, she did not have hope. She had despair at this point. But she goes, she finds the tomb empty, and so she ran, verse 2, went to Simon Peter and the other disciple, this is John, okay, the other disciple is John, the one whom Jesus loved, and he said to them, uh, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciple. John does not say his own name in his gospel. He doesn't declare himself. It, the reason why is because a lot of the Bible writers did not do that because it was an act of humility. He's being very humble in one sense, even though uh, he's going to uh, declare that he's a faster runner in another sense. There's a reason for that. It says both of them were running together, but the other disciple, John, outran Peter and reached the tomb first. He's not necessarily being prideful. He's just saying that John is younger than Peter. Peter is an old man in his early 30s. <laughs> John is like maybe 20 years old. Stooping to look in, he saw the linen cloths lying there, and he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there, and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in and saw, and here's the important part, and believed. For as yet, they did not understand the scripture that he must rise from the dead. He didn't understand that, but he believed. That's, a, that's an amazing truth. You don't have to understand everything. You can have faith. And then the disciples went back to their homes. And Lord, we, uh, we thank you um, that we get to believe, to apply this faith, and to see it uh, then manifest into a relationship no matter where we've come from, no matter what we've done, no matter how badly we've messed up or walked away or wherever we've been, um, you're, you're there to welcome us back with open arms that the tomb is empty. <laughs> you're alive and you love your children. You love each and every one of us enough 
to, to receive us back. Lord, help us to uh, take that small amount of faith that we have, Lord, to let it grow, uh, to let it compel us, let it motivate us um, to know you, to trust you, to walk with you, uh, to lay this life down uh, before you and let you take hold of it, take control of it, do what you want with it, uh, to give us hope and confidence for the future and for eternity. And God, we're going to just give you praise today, God, that you have you've called each and every person here today, whether they know it or not, whether they, they had any part in, in any part of it. <laughs> they just simply stepped into a, a moment, into a time, into a place where you can get a hold of their heart, Lord, and I pray that today that that's exactly what would happen, that you would just speak to their heart, get a hold of each and every person, say to them what they need to hear, um, give them the, the power of your Holy Spirit to receive it, to do with it what needs to be done, and uh, to know without a doubt, Lord, by the time that we leave this place, that, uh, that you've had your say. You, you've done what you need to do, Lord, and let us respond to that with faith, with yes, with thank you, and give you all the praise. Whatever you want to do, God, we give it to you for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Last uh, couple of weeks, if you've been following along, we've explored and tried to understand this, this really important thing um, of Lazarus. Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead in John chapter 11. And in John's gospel, and according to his understanding of Jesus's life and the trajectory of where he was going on the cross, Lazarus was the pivotal moment. Now, if you're not aware, Lazarus died. He's in the tomb for four days. He began to smell bad. Okay, according to the King James, uh, Martha said, Lord, by now he stinketh, right? He was beginning to decompose, and Jesus went and he called Lazarus out of the tomb. And what happened was because that moment was so significant, so powerful, and so evident that only God could do this, People put their faith in Jesus, and his enemies looked at that as the moment of, we cannot let this go any further. From there, about a week later or so, Jesus begins to enter Jerusalem, what we call the triumphal entry or Palm Sunday. And what was happening was that a lot of the people that were at the tomb saw the resurrection of Lazarus, saw Jesus perform this miracle. They were there giving God praise, saying, here's the Messiah, here's the Christ, here's the one that we've been waiting for. They were spreading the news to all the people around them because this is not something you would hold in. Okay? You wouldn't keep this to yourself. You see somebody raised from the dead okay, by the authority of a person who just says, come on out of there, okay, you're going to go spread the news. They were telling everybody, and people were gathering around from all over as, the, as Jerusalem's just exploding with population because of the festival that's happening. And here Jesus is coming into town, and people are shouting, Hosanna, it means save us. And blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And they're putting their coats down and their palm branches and everything that they had for him to travel on as like a red carpet into Jerusalem, into the temple. 
and uh, they, the, the enemies of Jesus, again, at this point are saying, if this continues, then we're going to lose everything. This is such an important moment. And Lazarus was that miracle that kind of steered everything towards the cross. And for John, that's important because what happens in the resurrection is that he, he sees it, okay? John sees Lazarus raised, and when he comes out of the tomb, you have to understand, Jesus told the people there to unwrap him. So you, he's hobbling out of the tomb. I mean, imagine like I just am been raised to life, and now I'm, I'm still wrapped in all this stuff and trying to make my way out. And they had to cut him out, unwrap him, whatever they had to do. But when John went to the tomb and he looked in and he saw the clothes of Jesus that he'd been wrapped in, lying there as if Jesus had just disappeared out of them. Nobody unwrapped Jesus. Okay, here's what happened. And John is trying to make this very clear to us, that Jesus, by his own power and authority, he laid his life down. He says, nobody takes my life from me. When he was on the cross, he breathed his last and he gave up his spirit. He, he released his spirit. Nobody, nobody has the power to do that but Jesus. And it says that he also has the authority and the power to pick his life back up again. And when those three days had passed and he had gone to where he needed to go for those three days, paid for sin once and for all, he just came to life. Nobody raised him from the dead. He raised himself. And he got up, and what we see in the other accounts as Jesus appears to his disciples is that he's going to pass through locked and closed doors. He's just going to appear. They're not going to really recognize him. He's, it's, he's different now. He's alive, and he's alive forever, and he's alive in a way that no one else has ever been alive. Okay, And so John sees this, understands it. For some reason, Jesus takes the, the napkin on his face, and he folds it, and he puts it aside, special. I don't know if that was a signal to whoever came to the tomb that Jesus is around. I think it was. But here's the thing is that John tells a story, and John's not the focus. He makes sure that we understand Peter really is the, the focus here. Um, John believed. It, it just says that simply... John saw this stuff. He, he didn't understand it all. He didn't necessarily put two and two together, but he, he believed. He just trusted that whatever had happened here, Jesus is alive. He's the Messiah. I'm just going to believe that. I'm just going to walk away and say, that's, that's it. Peter, it says, he walked away wondering. Or in another translation, it says marveling. And I think that what it really means is that he was hoping. Not quite to the point of full-on believing, but he, he, he wanted to believe. And here's, you know, you look around, there are people here that believe. Amen? Just, I believe it. And you believe it because you've experienced it. You believe it because God has confirmed it to your heart. It's just, you don't need more information. You just believe it. And then... There are other people here who want to believe. If something's holding you back, I don't know what it is, but something says, I want that to be true. I'm just not sure where I'm at in this whole thing. 
So here's Peter, okay? Um, he, he was there from the beginning. He was there in a way that most people envy. He, he saw things you and I would love to have seen. He did things that you and I would love to do. He, okay, from the very beginning, he was following Jesus. As soon as Jesus was revealed as the Lamb of God, he was right there, and he, was, he, was, he never left Jesus' side. He was one of the three people that were his inner circle. Jesus had an inner circle. Okay? He had three disciples, Peter, James, and John, that he took everywhere. But out of those three, Peter was the one who was always there. And he sometimes put his foot in his mouth, Sometimes he messed up, but a lot of the times he got things right. He was there when Jesus turned water into wine. He saw it. He believed. He, he, it says at that moment when he did this in Cana of Galilee that this is the, the sign that his disciples began to believe in him, began to put their faith in him. It was something that, who does this? It was the first thing they saw that he, that he did that was a miracle, and they, they just began to believe at that point. He, he was there a little while later, and I, I talked about this a little bit last week, but it's really an amazing thing. Jesus had just fed the 5,000. That was a big deal. Would you agree? It's a big deal. He just fed 5,000 people with a couple of loaves of bread and some fish. <laughs> that's, that's totally miraculous. In fact, it was so miraculous, people wanted to make him king right then and there. They were ready to just, okay, you're, you're the guy, let's do this. He says, no, it's not my time, and this isn't the way. What happens later that night, Jesus walks on water, okay? Whenever you talk about somebody being perfect, what do you say? Oh, they, they think that they walk on water. Why do we say that? It's only God can do that. It's Jesus. But here's the thing. He's walking across the Sea of Galilee. The disciples are scared out of their minds, Right? They're like, it's a ghost. They're, you know, they're freaking out. And they want some confirmation that this is Jesus. He says, hey, guys, it's just me. Peter alone says, if it is you, tell me to come walk on the water with you. You know the story, right? That's, he gets out of the boat and he walks on water. But here's the thing. We believe that God is an all-powerful God. Amen? You, anybody who believes in God doubt that he's all-powerful? He can do anything. He can create anything. He can, he, there's nothing that's outside of his power. It's one thing to believe that he can do that. For, for Peter and the disciples to believe that Jesus can walk on water to see it and to believe that, oh, yeah, he has the power to do that, of course. That's one thing. But to have the faith to say, and you, Jesus, have the power to make me able to do that. You, that's different. That's beyond. That's more, okay? And Peter gets out, and he walks on water. Yeah, he kind of loses his cool, and he begins to sink. But still, the only two people in history ever walked on water. Peter's one of them. It's amazing. He was there at the transfiguration, saw Jesus' face radiating like the sun. He, he believed, and there's something going on here, obviously. There's just more to this than meets the eye, that, that Jesus is more. 
He's the Messiah. When Jesus asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Remember, they're saying, well, you're the, maybe the prophet. Some people say you're like, you know, uh, Elijah. Some people are saying maybe you're John the Baptist. John the Baptist had been beheaded, and some people thought, well, maybe Jesus has just resurrected John the Baptist like they sewed his head on or something. I don't know. So Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And I'm telling you that they kind of knew it, but Jesus, Peter said it. You're the son of God. And Jesus tells him, he says, you don't know that because you're smart, Peter. You know that because God revealed it to you. It's a unique thing that Peter had. You know, he, he was close to Jesus. He believed in Jesus in a special way. He followed Jesus in, in a close relationship. On the night that uh, Jesus was betrayed that, you know, around the table, um, Jesus washed their feet. Peter, I mean, he, this is where he puts his foot in his mouth. He goes, no, no, Lord, not me. Because he, he, he was kind of thinking that he was really special in this whole arrangement. And Jesus says, you know, if you're not going to let me wash your feet, then you have no part in me. And what does Peter say? Well, then, Lord, my hands, my head, and just, yeah, I want, I want to, I'm all in. That night, G, Peter says to Jesus, even if all these other jokers abandon you and run away and they're cowards, I will die with you. Now, they all said, well, yeah, 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 we, we'll, we'll do the same. I mean, they all agreed, but Peter said it. And I think he really thought that he meant it, right? He was there later that night when they went and prayed in Gethsemane and Jesus is sweating great droplets of blood, okay, because he knows, Jesus knows, he's going to not just die a violent death. Nobody wants that, okay? Nobody, nobody's looking forward to dying a painful death. That's not what he's overwhelmed with. He's overwhelmed with the thought and the idea of becoming sin. He who knew no sin, never had sinned, he's going to become sin. And because of that, on the cross, his father is going to turn his face away from him. Like he couldn't bear that, that thought. And he's praying, and he's, but he's submitting that, that will to his father. Yes, your will be done. And Peter I think Peter has overheard some of this. I don't know if it made total sense to him. He ends up falling asleep, but he, he hears it. He sees it. He's there. He's one of the three that are close by. And then, later on, Judas comes with a little army to uh, arrest Jesus. And what does Peter do? You know this story? Jesus has told his disciples, and I'm not, this isn't well known, we don't talk about this, but he told his disciples, there's coming a day when you're going to need a couple swords. You have to defend yourself. It's okay. And so they said, Lord, is this enough? He said, that'll do. Okay. Apparently, Peter was one who held the sword. He might be slow. Apparently, he's strong. Anyway, this guy, Malchus, apparently in the thick of it, trying to arrest Jesus. Peter cuts his ear off. 
And you and I say, eh, what's an ear, right? <laughs> I mean, here's the thing, though. You cut somebody's ear off. What are you trying to do? You're trying to kill them. This, this was not a joke. I mean, Peter was trying to decapitate this guy. By the grace of God, really by the grace of Jesus, he fails, and then Jesus, according to the Gospel of Luke, heals the ear of Malchus so that Peter doesn't get killed. Here's what Peter says, Lord, I will die with you, and what he seems to really have meant is, Lord, I will kill for you. Take that for whatever it means, but the reality of it is he's got a passion for Jesus, that he's, he's, he wants to be by his side. I think he really did mean it, he, but when the moment came and he saw what Jesus did, he left like everybody else. Now, here's what happens next. Jesus is arrested. He goes to the house of Caiaphas. There, he's on trial. And Peter is there. Pause that for a moment. I don't know if I made my point clear enough. Do you understand the substantial nature of Peter's faith? How much he believes in Jesus. Do you get that yet? He started off as well as anyone could. Okay. He's there. He and John get access to the courtyard. They're hanging out around the fire. And uh, I don't know. I guess Peter's just curious what's going to happen, maybe. Maybe he's thinking he'll have another chance. I don't know. But he, he puts himself in that position. They begin to ask him, are you... One of his, I thought I saw you there. You sound like a Galilean, and most of his disciples are Galilean. And No, 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 you got me mistaken three times. Okay, Jesus had told him that you're going to deny me three times before the rooster crows. But here's the thing, the third time, it's a little more than just, no, no, you have me mistaken. He says, and, and I apologize for this, but this is what he basically is saying. May God damn me if I know him. He calls down curses on himself. This is what he's saying, literally. And in that moment, Jesus is within earshot. He's 50 feet away. As soon as he says that, Jesus turns and looks at him. Can you imagine? Did Peter's faith change? Did he still believe in Jesus? Still believe that he's the Messiah? Still trust that he's the one that God was sending? His faith didn't change, but in that moment, something else changed. His relationship with his Lord. It is a miracle that Peter did not immediately leave that place and kill himself. Judas did. Peter had something in the back of his mind or something somewhere in his heart that said, even as, as horrific a thing that he had just done, 
that he trusted Jesus to forgive him. I don't know if he knew that he could forgive himself. And here's what I'm trying to get to here. So many people that I know, and I, and I don't know too many people who don't fit into this category, okay? Most people that I know, if not everybody that I've ever talked to, have some history with God, some faith, some experience, some church background, some faith background, something that, like I said before, it might just be a mustard seed of faith, but that's enough. Some own it absolutely, some hope that it's still alive in there somewhere, but, but I don't know anybody that, and if I'm wrong, then I'm wrong. I'm just saying nobody that I've talked to uh, has ever said they have zero faith, zero background history with God. I, I don't know anybody like that. Maybe you do, and that's okay. But here's what I also know, is that a lot of people who have this history with God, some point in their life, get off track. Off track in some way or other. And, and here's how it was for me. I, I remember when I was a little kid that um, I had four or five years old, I just remember feeling like God was there and I could talk to him and he would hear me and it was close. I don't know if that's weird. I don't know if that's unusual or if that's normal. I, I don't know. But I remember feeling that. But I also remember at some point along the way that that relationship did not continue to be that close. And I believe what happened was I had substituted the relationship for a re religion. And as I began to do my own thing and do the things of the world and things that were separating me from God, I, my faith didn't necessarily change. I still believed in God. I still believed in Jesus. I still um, thought that those things were true. There wasn't anything necessarily in my life that had changed other than how I was relating to God. Something had changed there. There was a distance that began to grow. When I came back to faith, what I call coming back to faith, when I was in college, it wasn't a change in what I believed. It was a change in my relationship with God. It was being reestablished. Somehow, through the witness of the people around me, through... Um, the evidence of, of God's love in my life, I stepped back into that relationship. Faith didn't change. I, my beliefs didn't change. It was my relationship that began to change. And here's what Peter, I think, is revealing, okay? On that morning, he runs to the tomb. Because in the back of his mind, or maybe the front of his mind, I don't know, somewhere along the way, there, there's the message of Jesus coming back to life was there. Okay? Matthew tells it 
over and over. Matthew chapter 16, verse 20 says, From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. He began to tell his disciples this openly and consistently and over and over he began to tell them. If you turn the page, chapter 17, verse 22, it says, As they were gathering in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man, that's Jesus, is about to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. Uh, and they were greatly distressed. The disciples didn't know what to do with this information. To them, Jesus dying was not part of their plan. You turn over to oh, chapter 20, Matthew 20, <clears throat> verse 17. As Jesus was going up to Jerusalem, he took the 12 disciples aside, and on his way he said to them, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles and be mocked and flogged and crucified, and he will be raised on the third day. And these things are... Peter knows them. He's heard this. He's heard it over and over and over. Everything happened exactly the way Jesus said it was going to happen. He was given over to the scribes and the Pharisees and the, and the uh, leaders, the religious leaders. He was crucified. And yet there's this thing, finally, where now the tomb is empty. Is he alive? I hope he is. He runs to the tomb, I believe, because he has this hope that somehow he can find Jesus alive. And that all his faith would be restored into a right relationship. He does eventually find Jesus alive. And here's what Jesus does, okay? You go to the end of John chapter 22, 21. 21. Only 21 chapters in John, so... Peter is reestablished by Jesus. He is brought back into a relationship. When he tell, tells Peter this, okay, he says, uh, Peter, do you love me? Three times. Just like three times Peter denied Jesus, but three times Jesus says, do you love me? He doesn't say, Peter, do you have faith in me? Peter, do you believe in me? He says, Peter, do you love me? Why? why? Why does he use that type of language instead of, Peter, do you believe in me? I mean, John 3.16 says that God so loved the world that whosoever what? Believes. You do have to have belief. You do have to have faith. Amen? You, that's how you begin this whole journey. You have to trust and believe and have faith that Jesus is the Messiah, the one that God has, has shown us that would come, is the Savior of the world who would take away your sin. You can't stop there, though. He says, do you love me? Do you love me? What does he say? Those who are forgiven much love much. He says, uh, many will come to me um, in the final day, and they'll say, Lord, didn't we do all these wonderful things in your name? You ever heard this before? And what does he say? Away from me, I never knew you. Knowing and loving are complimentary words here. 
Christianity, I'm, I'm telling you, it's not a religion. It's not a, a list of to-dos. It's not a, a requirement of do this and go to church and pray and read your Bible and then you know, mark all these things off of your list and then therefore God will let you into heaven. There's no pop quiz at the pearly gates, guys. <laughs> Peter's not up there with some trick question for you to try to answer. You put your trust in Jesus, mustard seed of faith. That grows into a relationship. Why do we go to church? Why do we pray? Why do we read the Bible? It's because this is what a relationship is. I, I know this. People, this may not be popular, people who say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian are, on one hand, correct, and on the other hand, off base. Because that's not the point. You're right. You don't have to go to church to be a Christian. You go to church because you are. You have a relationship, and this is part of the expression of that. You don't have to go home to be married. I don't pray in order to be saved. I pray because I am. I don't read the Bible in order to be saved. I, I read the Bible because I am. I have a relationship. These things grow my relationship. They build me up in faith, and they build me up in my walk, and they build me up in my daily personal experience of the presence of Jesus. And it is by grace that we're saved through faith. It's an amazing thing, but here's the last thing. When Peter is reestablished, reaffirmed in his relationship, he says, Jesus says, do you love me? And Peter says, yes, of course, you know I love you, but here's what Jesus says back to him. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. Feed my lambs. Here's our problem all the time, all the time. This is my problem. We... Um, we want to establish people's faith. I, I do. I want you to know Jesus. I want you to believe in him. We want to establish your relationship. A lot of times we stop there. We just stop. You believe in Jesus? Great. You're saved. Check that off the list. Go to heaven. Praise the Lord. Get baptized. That'd be great. Um, if you love Jesus you know, and, and grow in your relationship, that'd be wonderful. But here's the, the third thing. He says... Serve me. He says, you gotta, you got to put this into practice. you got to do something with it. He's, he's called you out of your old life. He's given you his Holy Spirit. He has a kingdom that you're part of. You're a child of the king. You're a brother and sister with Christ. You're a new creature in Christ. All these things, he says, you got to do something with that. Why is our, our experience of the Christian life so weak? is because we're back here at step one, I believe. A lot of times we don't even get to step two. I have a relationship. Much less step three, I gotta do something with this. 
I got to let people know about it. I got to serve. I got to give. I got to somehow communicate this in my home, in my school, to my family, to the community. Somehow I got to give back to God what he's gifted to me. Amen? My prayer this morning is simply this. Everything about what we're trying to communicate this morning is simply this. We all need to reestablish a right relationship with Jesus. All of us. There's not a person here today who doesn't need to grow or to reaffirm or to have more confidence in or to mature in their relationship with Jesus. Amen? Level playing field. Okay? It's your choice today, this moment, to say, yes, I want more of that. For some people, it's starting from like, I just need to start by trusting him. For some people, it's I've trusted him for decades, but I need to get the joy of my faith and my relationship back. For some people, it's, it's uh, I need to know what he's calling me to do. I've been sitting on the sidelines, and I need to get involved. It doesn't matter. We're, we all need something here. Amen? And my encouragement and my call and my challenge to you is to just step into that. Just say yes to the Lord this morning. Whatever he's calling you to, step into it with a yes because you will not be disappointed. The wonderful thing that Peter had going for him, he had a tremendous amount of trust in Jesus. You can have the same. Father, we thank you. Lord, we give you praise, thanks, honor, glory. Lord, would you please, would you, by your Holy Spirit and your power and your grace, confirm in every heart, every mind, exactly what you're saying to them, Lord. It may not even be anything what I've said. But you're speaking, Lord, by your Spirit and by your Word, and I pray today, Lord, that you would confirm what you're saying. Draw us, each and every one, to you. Establish us firmly according to your will. Lord, help us to see. Maybe we don't understand, but help us to see our place in your kingdom. To know that it is our place, Lord, that you have you have an appointment for each and every one of us, that you want to confirm that to our hearts, Lord, that we, we are welcome. <laughs> we are invited. We've been created to be part of your kingdom. We give you all the praise, Lord, because only you can do that, but only we can respond to it. And so help us to respond. Help us to do what you've called us to in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. I want to just invite you this morning. This is a day of, of rededication. Amen. This is a day for anyone and everyone to say, whatever that past history of faith is, I want to confirm its reality this morning. I want a new relationship with Jesus. I want a deeper relationship with Jesus. I want to see how that can 
changed my life. You're invited. You are welcome to come to the altar and say yes to the Lord. We just invite you to come and kneel for a moment and just say, God, I, I need you. And I believe he puts his thumbprint on you when you do that. I don't know how or why, but there's something mysterious that happens when you just kneel for a moment and say yes to God. He, he'll confirm it to your heart. You will sense something happen. <laughs> Amen? So don't hesitate if he's calling you. Let's stand and sing.